you have your Bible, we'll be looking at the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 3 through 11 this morning. Philippians chapter 1. The word of the Lord reads, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless into the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we are humbly, gratefully, exceedingly rejoicing in who you are. That, Lord, we are nothing apart from you, And what is man that you are mindful of him? And yet, God, we are recipients of your grace, of your goodness. And for that, Lord, we are eternally grateful. Father, we also realize that we need you even now to open our ears and our hearts to receive the truth of your word, to be transformed, to further Christ's likeness by the ministry of your spirit. We need you even now in that endeavor, God, that without you, we can do nothing. So, Lord, we just ask for you um, that you would accomplish your purposes, your will, and your glory alone. That you would use this time to the praise and glory of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. There's one man who leads a ministry dedicated to helping and revitalizing local churches. And he was hired as a consultant of a church to assess uh, why there was a decline in membership and a decline in attendance. Um, I don't necessarily agree with all of his results, but I think it was very helpful in some of the things he pointed out when he was assessing this church and why was it dwindling, why was it dying. And so he conducted what he called an autopsy of a dying church and provided a handful of reasons of what he observed, what was kind of the traits of going on with this church that was dying. And I'm only going to point out four that I think were pretty poignant. But the first one he noted was that there was no evangelistic emphasis no evangelistic emphasis. And he explained that when a church loses its passion to reach the loss, the congregation begins to die. Another reason he noted was the members had more and more arguments about what they wanted. He explained that as the church continued to decline toward death, the inward focus of the members turned caustic and, and the arguments became more and more frequent. And the third reason he pointed out was the church rarely prayed together. In its last eight years, the only time of corporate prayer was a three-minute prayer, three-minute period in the Sunday worship service when they did pray, and the prayers are always limited to the members themselves, about their friends, families, and their physical needs. And a fourth reason, the last one I'll mention, is that the church had no clarity as to why it existed. There was no vision, no mission, no purpose. Now, we'll be explicit in stating that I'm not directing this at this specific church or any church in particular. But what I do want to be explicit about is that we never want to take a prideful assumption that this can never happen to our churches. That we never want to assume that this can never be my church that I attend. That I think there's some very important things that he lays out that we have to remember, as he pointed out, is that why are we existing as a church, right? Like, what is the purpose of the church? Why even am I a part of this church as an individual, 
I mean, I can, you can probably tell from your own observations that when a church begins to dwindle, that they'll throw out anything to make to save it, right? It's almost like a, throw out this, life, this lifeguard, this, 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 this kind of <laughs> lifesaver to, to, to do anything. Let's, do, let's start a program. Start, let's do this. Let's do this ministry, this ministry, this, pro, this program. We'll do anything to save it. But the question remains, what really makes a successful, fruitful church? Is it about numbers? What makes it fruitful? Now, as Paul's writing here to the Philippian church, he affirms the Philippians for what they're doing. He affirms, affirms them for their work and their growth as a church. As you may know, that Paul was really pleased with the Philippians. He was pleased with what he saw. He was pleased with their ministry. And as in common with, with many of Paul's books, before he, he, he starts the letter and he's writing to the church, he begins with a commendation of how well they've been doing. And this book in particular he spends a good time explaining why he is pleased with this church. And so this passage we just read, it consists of Paul's prayer for the Philippians. Now in this prayer, there's three aspects that model fruitful Christian ministry for you to imitate in this prayer. And that's what we're going to be looking at, the three aspects of Paul's prayer that models fruitful Christian ministry for you to imitate. I think it's a good question to ask that if he's pleased with the Philippians, which he is, why is he pleased, Right? Like, why is he pleased with them? What are they doing? And I want to make sure I'm doing the same thing, right? <laughs> I want to be pleased as well. What is it that he sees in them that, that, is, that is very good, that he's pleased with, so that I can imitate? What can we learn from them? And can we be praised for the same thing? So three aspects we're going to look at is, as we analyze his prayer. We're going to be looking at the manner of his prayer in verses 3 and 4. The reason for his prayer in verses 5 and 8, 5 through 8. And then finally, the substance of his prayer in verses 9 through 11. The manner of his prayer in verses 3 through 4. Reason of his prayer in verses 5 through 8. And the substance of his prayer in verses 9 through 11. In other words, if I can simplify it, the manner of his prayer, how is he praying? And then why is he praying? And for what is he praying? So if we look at the, the first aspect, the manner of his prayer in verses 3 through 4, it states in verse 3, just, just observation, let's just look at it. Verse 3 says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Anything stand out? All my remembrance, always offering every prayer for you all, all, every, always, all, every, always. Just, he's, 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 he's really encompassing everything about them. That, that if you look at verse 4, it literally reads just in the original language, always in all my prayers for you all with joy making prayer. Like he, he's really emphasizing one thing, that, that he's not only praying fervently, he's, he's always praying for them, but he's praying for all of them. Always for all of you in every remembrance that, that, that he is he is really emphasizing the fact that I am genuinely and fervently and constantly praying about you and praying for you. Now, obviously, he's not praying 24 hours a day. And then how would Paul do the ministry? <laughs> but, but, but he's praying constantly. And this is just one note for us I think is helpful is that Paul models prayer in his own ministry. And in that same, that, that same modeling that he's expecting them to do, he's modeling for himself. He, he's saying, look what I'm doing. I'm praying constantly for you. The same expectation he has for the church, he's modeling in himself. That this ministry that I'm, I'm overseeing, I, I am, I'm ministering to you. I'm, I'm praying for you. I'm loving for you. And, and the way that I'm hoping and seeing for fruit in your life is through the prayer and the work of God. It is very helpful for us to see that prayer was very, a very important component in Paul's ministry. And it should be an important co- component to our ministry and any ministry of any church anywhere. That we should constantly be praying, fervently be praying, realizing that any work, any fruit that happens in any ministry is founded in prayer. And it's sustained in prayer. And results in thanksgiving to God. That we can't expect fruit from anything. That anything we're hoping to do to please the Lord We must beseech the Lord of the harvest to do the work because without him, nothing happens. Essentially, this is a picture of what Paul says to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, to pray how? Without ceasing. To pray, in other words, pray constantly. To pray constantly. 
It's almost like the idea of, of a hacking cough. Like if you have a cough, if you're sick, you, you're coughing all throughout the day. It's like this, this constant reminder, cough, cough, cough. But in other words, Paul's saying pray without ceasing. Pray constantly. As you cough, 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 pray constantly, constantly, constantly. These short prayers, long prayers, pray often. He also says in the Ephesians church, chapter 6, verse 18, to pray at all times in the Spirit. The prayer, in other words, is like the gasoline of the car, that it's not moving without it. That you're praying constantly, constantly, constantly in all regards. Or in Paul's words, in every remembrance. I think another note that's important for us to realize is that not only is, is Paul modeling prayer in his ministry, but I think we also see that prayer is not just petition-based. It's not just petition-based. In other words, we're not just praying just to receive something. We're not just praying for something. Now, those are, we should do that, but that is not the entirety of our prayer life. Because notice how he says he prays how? With thanksgiving. That all throughout this letter, particularly in Philippians, joy and rejoicing, thanksgiving is such a crucial theme in this letter that Paul is praying with thanksgiving. And then our prayer is not only petition-based, but it's, it's filled with thanksgiving, realizing that we always have a reason to give thanks to God. That our prayers should be filled with thanksgiving, filled with gratefulness. One person said this way, I just heard this last week, that prayer without, prayer without thanksgiving is like a bird without wings. Such a prayer cannot rise to heaven and can find no acceptance with God. That's a great way of putting it. That, that prayer without thanksgiving is like a bird without wings. It goes nowhere. And I think because it realizes that in everything, that God is always working and God is always worthy of praise. And they were always to be grateful in all things. Because keep in mind, Paul is writing in a prison cell, praying with thanksgiving. But even more, he prays with joy. He says, with thanksgiving, making every prayer with joy. That this, is, this epistle, this letter to the Philippians has been called, some have coined it, the epistle of joy. The epistle of joy. Because Paul's, Paul's focus through everything that's happening, whether in jail, whether outside of jail, that he is encouraging and exhorting the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord always. Because he's reminding them that our joy as believers is never founded in our circumstance. Amen. That our joy is never established or rooted in what we're going through, but our joy is always, always rooted in the goodness, the unwavering, the steadfast character of God. And because he is God, because who he is, we can have joy, whether we're in a jail cell, whether we're outside of the jail, whether there's a pandemic, whether the pandemic's over, whether the economy crashes, no matter what, we can have joy This is just a taste of the command to rejoice that is found all throughout this letter. That our lives ought to reflect consistent thanksgiving with joy, anchored in God, who is our joy. And this joy, uh, one theologian put it this way in describing this joy, in, in kind of looking, through, looking or describing joy through the lens of Philippians, he says that joy, it, it leaves every need before God in untiring prayer. In Philippians 4, 6, and, and it takes heart at the spread of the gospel, this joy, in Philippians 1, verse 5 and following. And not only that, but this joy, it, it takes heart at the growth of missionary churches, Philippians 4, 10. And this joy, above all, is founded in the Lord, Philippians 4, 4. That this is the kind of biblical joy we want to strive for. It places every need, every, every stressful need, every, every weight that we have, it places it upon the shoulders of God, and I can have joy in that. It, it takes heart at the spread of the gospel because that's what's happening. And it, and it, takes, it takes heart and takes, takes passion and joy at the growth of churches because we see the gospel spreading in that. And it takes joy ultimately found in the Lord. That this is the joy that we want to have. This is biblical joy. So in this manner of prayer, that how he's praying, he's praying constantly with thanksgiving, reminding them who God is and, and, and assuring them that God is a God worthy of joy and of thanksgiving at all times. So why is he praying this way? It's a healthy church, but why? What have they done? What specifically have they done that he's commending? Which is very important for us to note. So we looked at the manner of his prayer, but the reason of his prayer, which highlights that in verses 5 through 8, is what I think tells us that. that. That's the key. What have they done? Why? 
So what's the reason that Paul gives thanks? Look at verse 3. He gives us three reasons all throughout these couple verses. But look at verse 5. I'm sorry, verse 5. He said, if I'm backing up to verse 4, always offering prayer with joy in every prayer for you all. Now, why is that in verse 5? In view of your participation in the gospel. In view of your participation in the gospel. So just one reason is that they are gospel-focused. That he's giving joy, he's praying and, give, and give with praying with thanksgiving and with joy because of their participation in the gospel. And that word participation is, there is another word we know best is fellowship. It's, it's the word in the ESV, I think it says partnership. So because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day now. And this word implies a close bond and it expresses a two-sided relationship. That there are two people working here. That this is a, a partnership. This is a fellowship. I remember when I was a kid, one preacher talking about the idea of fellowship. And he, he said that fellowship can be best transliterated as fellow chipping. <laughs> fellow chipping. And why, why do you say that? It's because everyone's chipping in for a common goal. That, that everyone is taking part in this one goal, that they're all chipping in and partnering up in partnership for this common goal. And so Paul's saying here, I'm rejoicing. I'm giving thanks to God because of your fellow chipping in the gospel. That he is pleased with the fact that they have realized the importance and the centrality of the gospel because that's why they're there. And he is pleased with it. That this fellowship was not just fellowship. I mean, it's the idea of just gathering together. Why are we gathering together? I don't know. We like each other. (laughs) That's good. But, But why are we gathering together? Because we like each other and we also love the gospel. And that's what they're gathered in. The gospel united them in a purpose. That that was the mission. They united not only for the common purpose of helping their friend Paul, but in for furthering the cause of the gospel. That this was stamped on Paul's forehead, right? That Paul was consumed with spreading the good news of Christ, with spreading the message of the gospel. This gospel is the good news of how sinful man can be reconciled to a holy God. This gospel that says in 1 Corinthians that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That this is the gospel that consumed Paul. The good news that says there's no amount of work, amen, that we can do to earn it. There's no amount of religion that we can do. There's no no matter how much we come to church, no matter how much we serve, that this doesn't earn our right to be reconciled to God. But this gospel says that it's a free gift of grace offered to anyone who would receive it in faith. That this is the gospel that he was preaching. That anyone who would turn from their sin and turn to Christ in faith, that they would receive salvation. That it is based solely on the work of Christ. It's Christ alone. That this is the gospel they were united in. And this is why God was pleased. Because they embodied their mission. You think of Christ's own words in Matthew. To make disciples. They wanted to spread this word. To draw people to Christ. And to mature them in the faith. To make disciples. And they became one in this purpose. I think it's also important to note that how were they partnering in this? How were they fellow chipping, if you will? How were they, what was their partnership like? Well, just tangibly, they, they, they sent gifts to support Paul, which he also makes mention in chapter four. If you flip over a couple chapters, verse 16, he says that for even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek the profit which increases to your account. And he says in verse 18, but I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. So their partnership consisted of a tangible support to Paul. And they were not just giving just for the sake of giving, but they were giving because they realized in their tangible giving, money and supplies, they were furthering the cause of the gospel because it was going to a specific purpose, helping their friend Paul so he can spread the message of Christ. I think they're also helping in non-tangible ways through prayer (laughs) and also sending someone from their congregation, Epaphroditus, to help. That they were all invested in this. How can we do it? We can, send, we can send supplies. We can send people to help because we realize this is the one message we're aiming at. We want to see Christ exalted and we want to spread that mission. We want to spread that word. And so let us send our resources. Let us send our people. Let us send our prayers so that we can further in that endeavor. 
He even explains in the length of their support that your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, that this was ongoing support, that they were committed to this from the very first time that they, they, they were saved and brought up in the faith. They were committed to this purpose from the first day. And even until now, he's writing this letter that you've constantly supported me, that this has been an ongoing relationship. I mean, you think of any business partnership, someone backs out the last minute, he backs out halfway through the process. What good is that? But he was pleased. This was ongoing participation. He even speaks of the Macedonian churches, which Philippi is in, in Macedonia, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5 verses. He talks about how they were, though, in deep affliction and great poverty, that they gave generously to help. That in their affliction, in their poverty, that they were giving to help. That this is not something to do with just the resources themselves, but they realize this goes deeper than what I am and what I have. But they want to give everything, all that they can, for the sake of Christ. And this is not just giving willy-nilly. This is not just giving just for anything. Oh, this seems like a nice person or a nice guy. Oh, you're saying the gospel, good. But no, this is strategic planning, strategic mission that they were seeking to advance. And you'll see this later, that they were giving strategically and purposefully. So this is biblical fellowship. As a united body, our goal is to pursue as one the ministry of the gospel. Now think about this this corporate involvement of one. He's saying all of you also includes individuals that make up all of them. So it, it requires individual investment to this corporate endeavor. That if everyone is not involved in this, it suffers. You think about the idea of the weak link of the chain, that everyone needs to be involved. All the church body is enthusiastic and driven to this purpose, that there's a unified body, all of them in every remembrance, all of them are involved. And it's active serving, not just passive, that they are actively seeking to serve, actively seeking to help. So if anyone wants their church to be a church pleasing to God, we must individually ask ourselves, whose agenda am I pursuing? Am I more concerned about Chris's agenda? Am I more concerned about how Chris can, can, can serve in a way that's helpful for Chris? Am I more con- consumed about Chris or am I more consumed about Christ? How am I contributing to this, to this corporate goal, to this unified goal that we have as a church? How am I contributing? Now, there are many diverse ways to, to, to do this. I mean, you think about it, you know, on TV where they have like those kind of those documentary type or those kind of do it yourself. And they show like maybe like a machine, like a, this big machine that's intricate process. That's making just one item, like this one toy. And it goes from this one machine that's doing one thing with his little arm. And then it's stamping down to another machine is moving towards the conveyor belt and doing something else. And like, it's all, and it's just making this one crayon. <laughs> like there's, it's, it's this whole machine that's working and working to do that one pr- purpose. And that's kind of the idea of the church that everybody is, is working in different ways, different giftings, different, different, d- different ways they can help, but it's all working as a cohesive whole for this one purpose, that we're not just seeking others' opinions or other agendas, but we're all seeking this one goal. How can we advance the gospel, glorify Christ by making disciples everywhere? So there are different roles, different ways, but it's all working together. And that is such an important component of any local church is to be a unified body. Because if there's any disunity, it disrupts the process, and that crayon is broken, if you will. So not only the reason, not only is he he proud because of their gospel-centered, but if you look at verse 6, that they persevere by God's grace. So he's thankful that they've been participating in the gospel, but I think Paul's realizing also who's at work in here. Because he says in verse 6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, perfect it into the day of Christ Jesus. So Paul is indeed thankful for what they've done, but he's also thankful for God's work. And I think that's a run reason why Paul can always give thanks. Because in the work of the believer, Paul knows that yes, the believer is working in their sanctification, but Paul also knows that in that believer, God will complete the work he started in him. That there is no work left undone that God, that God starts that he finishes and completes it. And that's why he says confident in here. I'm confident in this very thing. He's convinced 
that the work of salvation that God initiated will be completed at the time of the believer's glorification. So once they're saved, once they're justified through this process of sanctification, before they're glorified in heaven, God will complete that work at the time of their glorification. And for that, he can give thanks. The doctrine of perseverance we're seeing here. He speaks of, John speaks of it in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, that when we see him, when we see Christ, what? We will be like him. Jude 24 and 25 says to him who is able to keep you from falling, that God will preserve and keep the believer, that he will sustain them. And Paul thanks them for their participation, and yet he's certain God will complete the work. Both are happening, that they are working, and he is confident God will complete the work. Ultimately, God starts, nurtures, and completes that work. How else could Paul maintain joy in every circumstance? How else could Paul maintain joy in a prison cell if he didn't know God was working in this, in this circumstance? How else could he be, be joyful knowing that people are afflicting him, people are opposing him? How else could Paul have joy in some of the worst circumstances if he was not certain of the sovereignty and the preservation of God? that he would preserve and keep him and even mature him through this process, that even in my worst days, God is perfecting me. And I'm sure Paul is seeing how much more, how much more reliant he is of God in even his best days and worst days. That his joy in God increases because he sees more and more of God daily and through his circumstances. And I think it's also true that once God begins his work in us, we don't become passive instruments, right? That God is working, so let me just hands off. No, no, we don't become passive instruments. That we, because God is working us, we actively work. He says in chapter 2 that work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God working in you. So we don't become passive in this endeavor. We become active. We know God is working, and I'm going to work too. I'm working everything. I'm working 100%. God is working 100%. Both are true, and we pursue both and trust in both, that I am working 100%, trusting in God's 100%, and 100% plus 100 100% equals 100%. <laughs> Wish I can explain that math, but I can't. One person said this way, and I appreciate that. In other words, that, that those who will be saved in the future live lives in the present, live holy lives in the present, but the holiness that characterizes their lives now is God's work from beginning to end. So those who will be saved in the future live holy lives now, and that holiness characterizes their lives that, that God's work is starting from beginning to end. So those who will be saved, God is working on now. And I think this theological teaching brings comfort to us ultimately, and it should. Because we didn't save ourselves. We know that. We can't preserve ourselves. I know that. I think Vody Bakum said that if you could lose your salvation— you would. <laughs> if I could, I would. And there's no doubt. But, but we can't preserve ourselves. We can't save ourselves. R.C. Sproul put it this way, that we are secure not because we hold tightly to Jesus, but because Jesus holds t- tightly to us. Through ups and downs, he's working. Through every circumstance, he's working. That God is working and perfecting us. That the hope we have, the reason we can have joy, that even in my worst days, that I know God is perfecting me. So in, this, in the second point, in the reason of his prayer, we've seen the reasons Paul gives thanks, that they're gospel-focused. We saw one reason. They persevere by God's grace. And now we'll see this third reason, that they practice unity. In verses 7 through 8. If you look at verse 7, For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. This unity and affection that is displayed is connected here with the Philippians' faithful support of the ministry of Paul. Because he says here, in my imprisonment, in, in, in my defense, and in my confirmation of the gospel, you have been partakers of grace with me. Again, we see that language here of unity, of partnership. That you have been a a, a business partner with me, if you will, in this. 
That in my imprisonment, while in prison, in my defense, the same word we apologia for apologetics, when defending the gospel, but not only just defending it, but confirmation of the gospel, he says. That in all these endeavors, that they have been a partaker with him. And I think here when he's saying that in my imprisonment, in my defense, and in my confirmation, that Paul is here speaking to the overall character of the church. Because whether he was in prison, whether he was defending the faith and confirming it, in all aspects, they have been supporters of him. If you look at Acts 16, Verse 14 is a parallel passage to the Philippian church. It says that they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them there and departed. That even Paul here, when he was arrested there for, for casting out the, the demon-possessed woman in the book of Acts, that the Philippian church, the Macedonians, were, were supporting Paul after that. They were encouraging him. And then we just read in chapter 4 how they encouraged him with tangible support, with gifts, with offerings, with help, with tangible help, with people. That all throughout his ministry, you have been constant partakers of grace with me. You have been a partner with me. And not just because it's me, Paul, but again, going back to his central point, that because of the gospel, you tangibly supported me, who's also focused on that same end. So they've been a partaker of grace. In other words, an associate of God's grace with him. One person said this way to being a partaker of grace, it's that operation of God's grace, which enables one to work in the interest of the gospel, to suffer for it, and to assist those who proclaim and defend it. In other words, they're sharing the grace given by God to accomplish his purposes. That the same grace motivating, strengthening Paul, the same grace motivating them to help in that purpose. And again, same key word we looked at, the alls, our favorite word, all. He says it again. He says, you all are partakers with me, that all of you are involved in this, that he is highlighting the the unity of the church, that all of you have been committed to this purpose, that this is not just the the missions ministry committee team here helping me. No, no, no. Everybody is, is involved in this. All of you have been partakers of grace that they're all co-partners. And I just think it's interesting, too, is that, that Paul here is the one in prison, the one going before kings and rulers, the one really suffering affliction, going, getting shipwrecked, and he's saying, no, no, you are a co-partner with me. Like, wait a minute, I'm not in jail with you, Paul. <laughs> like, I, I'm, my ship is still sailing, <laughs> but, but you're suffering, and you're calling me a, a co-partner with you? Why? Because you are helping and you are tangibly helping, supporting in prayer. You invest in this just as much as me, and you are just as important a partaker of grace with me. That just kind of blows my mind because Paul's going through a lot. And yet he said, no, 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 you are sharing with me in God's grace. The same grace working in me is working in you. This spiritual, this unity was not just a spiritual front, but it was personal. That yes, they were committed to the gospel, but because they're committed to the gospel, they're committed to other people who were committed to the gospel. That's an essential component there. That it involved genuine love and appreciation and support with other tangible people. He genuinely loved them, as he says, that I had the affection of you, that of the affection of Christ Jesus. And because their love for him flowed out of their desire to see the gospel spread, they supported Paul. That their love for the gospel, their love for Christ, poured out in their love for Paul. Which is why in verse 8 he says, I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. That inward parts, it's the seat of the emotions. That that inwardly he says, I long for you, I love for you. One commentator paraphrased this way, that the love that Christ has for you, which is also at work in me. That's the kind of love I have for you. That same love that Christ is working in me. It's not just superficial. But he's talking about his true partnership here. That was sacrificial. Remember, they were in deep affliction and poverty. This is sacrificial love. This is sacrificial on their part to give. Being a lover of Christ means being a lover of Christ's people. Being a lover of Christ means being a lover of Christ's people. That there is a genuine relationship that when we come together for a purpose and when, when there's unity in this common goal, when there's fellowshipping happening, we must love one another. We must lay down our personal agendas. We must lay down our own opinions and we must focus upon the main central goal that Christ establishes church to make known his name among all peoples. So they're gospel focused. 
They're persevering by God's grace. And they're practicing unity. These are all lessons for, for the local church to heed. That that church exists for the glory of God. The church exists to make known Christ among all peoples. The church exists to make disciples of Christ. To help people follow Christ. Which requires a unity in purpose. Unity in goals. So we saw the manner of his prayer. The reason for his prayer. We're going to look the third point at the substance of his prayer in verses 9 through 11. In other words, what is he praying what is Paul praying for? I think the central point, what he's really praying is that we'll get at in verse 9, is that he's praying that they would excel in love. That they would excel in love. Look how he, he, he specifically states it in verse 9. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. He's praying for them. This is what I'm praying, that your love would abound still more and more, which implies they already have love. But with that love that they have, he's saying, no, I'm not praying that, 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 you're lo- that you get love. You have that love in Christ. When God saved you, he, he, he gave you the fruits of his righteousness. But what he's saying here about that love, I'm praying for that love to grow more and more and more and more and more. It would continually pour over. It's the idea this continual waterfall of love that's increasing more and more and more. The water never ceases. And I'm praying that it continually increases more and more and more. That it would abound here. In other words, this this love to a greater degree I'm seeking for. I'm seeking for your love to go to higher and higher levels. That if we talked about this idea of sanctification, it will never, never end until we're glorified. And I'm, I'm praying for you that your love will continually grow, continually increase, continually abound until we see the Lord Jesus Christ. That that is a goal for all of us to, to always and constantly seek. That we're never, never okay with being stagnant in our love. That we're constantly seeking to grow in, in many ways, in many aspects. That our, our love is continually growing to a greater degree. And I think it's important because note what he doesn't say. He could pray this, but he didn't say, I pray that your gifts will continue. He doesn't pray that. He, he doesn't pray that I pray that you would plant more churches. That would be a good thing. But no, he think he's getting to some of the heart issues here. I pray that your love would grow. John 13, verse 35, Jesus said, By all this, men, men will know that you are my disciples. How? If you have love for one another. Romans 12, 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing love. That this is a constant pursuit of every individual of that corporal body to pursue love more and more and more. And we have to know and remember, it's not just an emotional, this blind puppy love kind of love, right? This is not just the engagement period love. This is a genuine purposeful love. Because note how he qualifies that. That in verse 9, that your love would abound more and more how? In real knowledge and in all discernment. That this is not just some sort of ethereal, this kind of mystical love, this heart love. But no, no, no. I want it to grow in real knowledge and in all spiritual discernment. Before we kind of unpack that, we're going to look at the reason here. Because he says, the reason why is so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless into the day of Christ. So the reason why he's praying that your love would grow, that the reason why he's praying is that, in other words, that you may approve. In other words, that you would examine, kind of think of the idea of gold being purified by, by, by fire. It's this examining process that your love would, would, would grow so that you may approve, that you may examine the things that are most excellent or the things that are excellent. So he's praying that you would grow, not so that you can just do certain things, X, Y, Z, but he's praying so that you can approve the things that are excellent. Now, I, I think it's interesting because he says, not that you would just approve the things that are good, but the things that are excellent. Not just the things that are mostly good, but the things that are excellent. If I can kind of maybe illustrate this way first, is if you think of for a spouse who's been married 10, 15, 20 years, 50 years, the longer you're married, the more specific and strategic ways the spouse knows how to love their spouse, right? The longer you're married, the more you know what is the most effective way I can love my spouse. 
I can give, I can buy my wife for Valentine's Day or her birthday two dozen red roses. Bring it to her work and her coworkers see like, oh, wow, two dozen. What, who bought your husband? Wow. And then she starts sneezing because she's allergic to roses. <laughs> that's a nice gesture. It looks really good. Like, whoa, it looks really, that's like hundreds of dollars, right? Two, 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 dozen, two dozen roses, that, that looks really good. I mean, everyone sees that. Wow, he loves his wife. But his wife is sneezing all throughout the day because she's allergic. What Really, what good is that? But if the man who knows his wife knows what kind of flowers she really likes, or maybe she even is like flowers, maybe she likes chocolate, he knows what to give her that would make her feel especially loved on her birthday or on Valentine's Day. And that's what he's saying here is that I pray that your love would grow so that you can approve the things that are excellent. In other words, the things that are most good. Or in other words, the things that are best, if I can put it that way. So that you can not just discern the things that are good, the things that are helpful, but the things that are worth your time and your money and your prayers and all your sacrifice. I'm praying so that you can know specifically and particularly what is most helpful, what is the things that are, that are, that are worth or superior. I mean, you think about it. We all know that there are so many things that a church can do. There are many good things that a church can do. There, there are so many opportunities. We live in such a broken world that there are many good things that a church can do. And that's not bad. I mean, we want to seek to do good to all people. But what I think Paul's praying here is that from all of those good things, you want to be able to discern what is the best thing. With our limited resources and time and money and people, what is the best thing that we could do to advance the gospel? And that's what he's praying for, because it's rooted from that heart of love, that once that love that is informed by knowledge, by God's truth and, and in discernment, spiritual wisdom, applying that truth, that love that is informed by the truth and the objective truth of God, it can discern what is the best thing for me to do to advance the gospel. And I think it also, obviously, it addresses that you're not just doing the best thing, but you're knowing what's, not, what's the wrong thing that we're not to do. I think that's implicit because you want to be blameless, he says, for the day of Christ Jesus. So we don't want to be seen with any spot or blemish, but you want to see what is the best thing. We want to be growing in love, a biblical in love, informed with the truth of God's word and the application of God's wisdom being poured out through the sacrifice of others for others. And so obviously the result of them bounding more and more in love is that they would be able to live out their faith more powerfully so that they may be pure and blameless, not having any reason to be ashamed the day of Christ. The church must not only be able to distinguish between good and evil in the religio-ethical domain, but must be able to determine what really is of value. What is really of value? Paul's saying here is that your love, informed by truth and wisdom, I pray that it would grow so that you as a church would know what is really of value. So how do I abound still more and more in love? I think we should all ask that self. I'll ask ourselves that question. How can I abound more and more in love? I think the first immediate answer to that is pray to pray and ask God that I would abound more and more in love. I think it's a great discipline to pray the prayers of Paul for the church. I mean, you think about the topic of love in the Ephesians church. He prays for them that you, that you would grow and, and know what is the, the length, the breadth, and the height of the love of Christ. He prays that they would know that love of Christ. So individually, I want to pray of my heart that I would abound still more and more in love so that I would be able to discern what really is of value. Let me lay down my own agenda. Let me determine what really is most worth my time and my effort so I can be part of this unified mission to spread the gospel. It also reminds us that love never travels alone because it's accompanied with these other virtues. Because he didn't say, if you think about just love apart from real knowledge and discernment, love that does not have any real knowledge and discernment is just enthusiasm. I mean, that, that's, just, that's just passion. That's just empty passion. That, that if it's not informed by knowledge, if it's not informed by wisdom, that love is really worthless. It's kind of annoying. 
(laughs) If it's just love for the sake of love, what good is it? That it's accompanied here by these other biblical virtues. So we cultivate this biblical love with the truth of God's word. We cultivate biblical love with understanding who is the God of love. That we start with, with who God is and how he loved us in Christ. Even when we were still sinners, he saved us. He loved us. That this is where love begins. That we, we, we grow in our love as we see what really does the word of God say. And how do I apply that in my life? How do we apply that as a corporate body? And how do we live this out? Realizing that the God of love exemplified this in Christ for us. That he laid down his life. He intercedes for us even now that God is love and his love is not divorced from knowledge, from wisdom, that it's informed and rooted in truth. I pray that our love would abound still more and more in knowledge and discernment that you may approve the things that are excellent. Now see here how Paul ends this prayer in verse 11. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. From the day of their salvation, they were filled with this righteousness. And it's not only a righteousness that is stagnant here, but he says that this righteousness is working, it's bearing fruit, and it must bear fruit of righteousness. But I think also one thing to note here in the beginning of his prayer, he says, who's he thanking ultimately in verse 3? I thank my God. In verse 11 here, he's saying, I pray that having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ, why? To the praise and glory of who? Of God. That he's sandwiching his prayer here, realizing that first giving thanks to God because he's seen the work that God is doing in them, and I think the work that they're doing and being obedient towards. But he's saying, I thank God for that in verse 3, but he's also saying here that now you've been filled with the fruit of righteousness, why? To the glory and praise of God. That ultimately, it's God's work and to the God's glory. That God is the beginner, he's the author, and he's the perfecter of their faith. And he just prayed that they would grow in love. And yet here in verse 11, he's saying, you've already been filled with the fruit of righteousness. You kind of catch that? That He's praying that you would grow, grow more and more and more in love. And now in verse 11, he says, you've been filled completely with the fruit of righteousness. Think of the picture of Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. It says that we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works. What about those good works that God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them? The believer's been equipped with these things, and yet Paul's here is praying that you would grow further, further in them, realizing that ultimately God did the work already in you. So you, we are to be faithful in walking in that obedience. The fruit is the work of Christ. John chapter 15, verse 4, he reminds us that the, the branch cannot bear fruit apart from the vine. Unless we abide in the vine, Christ, we cannot bear fruit. The glory and praise of God is sandwiched here in the beginning and the end. That real fruit, real fruit that happens in Christian ministry brings honor to the owner of the vineyard. That this real fruit ultimately brings glory to the vineyard owner, not to the fruit itself. That this work that God is doing, we give thanks to God and realizing that even in this fruit that we're seeking to live out, that this is ultimately a work of God who filled us with fruit of righteousness so that we could live it out in faithfulness. He's equipping us with all things. And therefore, going back to my previous point, that we were active in pursuing this. That we're active in growing in our love. Active in growing in righteousness. Knowing that God equipped us for everything that we would need for life and godliness. In this letter here that Paul, as he begins the Philippians, and he kind of hashes out just in the beginning, that he is commending and pursuing for them to be a church that pursues unity in all aspects. I mean, just think about the emphasis in the New Testament constantly, how how the church is seen as just one body. It's a reminder that this this body is a local body, is one part of the the greater body of Christ, is still one in Christ, that we can never be separated in our agenda, in our goals, in our mission. But the body of Christ has one goal, is to glorify the head, Christ. 
And we are called to be united as one for one mission, to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the glory of God alone. That this is the the mission of every corporate body, but also of every individual member within that corporate body. One of the biggest threats to the church is disunity. And often disunity is really sown in selfish ambition, which he addresses later on in chapter 2. Is that we don't ever want to be an individual member that is seeking my own selfish ambition. But I really want to be united with the corporate mission of the church for that one mission. They're commended for the unity of the gospel that they have. And we want to be commended for the same thing. That unified for this purpose to glorify Christ. I think it's helpful to ask ourselves, is, is, is my goal... My goal in the church to advance, gospel, to advance the gospel, to make Christ known? Is that my personal goal? Do I want to glorify Christ? Do I want to make disciples? Is that my personal, does that really, is that really uh, the, the fire burning in my heart? Is that what I really live and breathe to do, to make Christ known? Is that my heart's desire? Is that my burning desire? Because if it's not, I need to do a heart check. Even for the believer that I need to do a heart check and remind myself, what is the gospel that saved me? Because that same gospel that saved me, it gives me a desire to want others to be saved as well for the glory of Christ. The sobering reality that today souls are going to hell. The sobering reality that today hundreds of thousands of people will die and enter into eternity. The sobering reality that God saved an undeserving wretch like me. And that same gospel that saved me, I must proclaim. I must proclaim in my work, in my relationships, in my family, in my church, that my central goal is to abound in love so I will discern the things that are most important to make Christ known. So are my issues and my qualms with the church out of line with this goal? Am I upset with my church for the things outside of this mission? Are they more focused on how I think things should be done? Or are they more focused on my own opinions? Or are they more focused upon the glory of God? Our heart's desire must be Christ's desire. Our heart's desire must be Christ's desire to seek love in all contexts of life, a genuine, knowledgeable love which desires to make Christ known. My prayer is that that every believer in the universal body of Christ would grow more and more in a love that is rooted in real knowledge and spiritual discernment, which expresses itself in sacrificial glory, sacrificial love to the glory of God alone. That this is why the church lives and breathes. This is why the church is united. This is why it is important to come together as a church. To glorify Christ by making disciples. May the same gospel that saved us be the same gospel we desire and are eager to proclaim. Father, we are eternally grateful that you saved us. Not on works of righteousness, but by your own mercy. Lord, you are worthy of all praise and glory. May we glorify and exalt you in every aspect of our life. May we seek to grow in love that is informed by knowledge so that we would determine the things that are excellent. God, we thank you so much for your word and how it shapes us and transforms us. I pray that even now that you would change and shape and form our hearts to be more like your son so that you alone will receive the glory. In his name we pray, amen.